Good morning, everyone, and welcome to a special Medicine Grand Rounds because today is also the annual William N. Chambers Lectureship. It's one of our department's major features each year. I want to first tell you about the Chambers Lectureship and then about today's speaker. So the William M. Chambers Professorship honors the career of Dr. Chambers, who began his time here at Dartmouth in 1946 when he came as a teaching fellow in medicine. He had done his undergraduate work at Amherst, and he got his MD at Cornell. He served in the U.S. Army Medical Corps for three years, rising to the rank of major and receiving the Bronze Star. At what was called at the time Dartmouth Medical School. He was promoted to Associate Clinical Professor of Medicine, and during his career he was known widely throughout New England for his compassionate care of patients and for his inspired writing on the practice of medicine. He believed in treating the whole person and viewed the practice of medicine as a calling. Shortly after his death in 1970, his widow, Susan Chambers, established an endowed fund to perpetuate the ideals of medical practice as exemplified by the life of Dr. Chambers, with a particular emphasis on the perception of human values in the understanding and the relief of illness. The Chambers Professorship was started in 1971 and brings to our medical center or highlights among our own faculty individuals who exemplify the type of medicine practiced by Dr. Chambers. The professorship and lecture is a vibrant part of the life of our department and a continuing testament to the profound effect of Dr. Chambers and what he had on Dartmouth-Hitchcock medical community. We are delighted to have with us today Jenna Day and Elizabeth Tao, his daughters, who are with us. And now let me tell you a little bit about today's lecturer. This is Jeffrey Weiss from Tulane University Medical uh, Health Science Center. He's a professor of medicine with tenure. He's the associate director of graduate medical education. He's the associate chair of medicine there. He's the chief of medicine at both charity and university's hospital systems. And he's the director of the Tulane University Internal Medicine Residency Program. He went to Drake University receiving his BA summa cum laude in both biology and sociology. He went to the Johns Hopkins uh, School of Medicine, getting his MD there, and then headed out to UC San Francisco, where he was an intern resident, chief resident, and stayed as a fellow for additional training, um, uh, a fellowship in medical education. And he joined the faculty of Tulane in the year 2000. And over the first eight years of his tenure there, he won over 40 teaching awards and started refusing to take any more of the intramural <laughs> awards. And in in his career, he's had many striking awards that you should know about. Among them, he's the six-time winner of the Tulane Attending of the Year Award. He won the Society of Hospital Medicine Education Award, the ACGME Parker Palmer Courage to Teach Award, the AAMC Robert J. Glazer Distinguished Teacher Award, the American College of Physicians Walter J. McDonnell Award, and the Society of General Internal Medicine Mid-Career Mentorship Award, among many other distinguished honors that he has. He's written scores of uh, peer-reviewed articles and book chapters. He's been the author or co-author on six books. He's delivered over 300 presentations nationally or internationally on the topics of which he is most passionate. 
and you will hear some of that today. He's been the past president of the Society of Hospital Medicine and serves now on its board of directors. He serves on many of the councils and committees of the ABIM, including, importantly, the Maintenance of Certification Committee. He's had two, he's involved with two HRSA grants related to improving transitions of care for vulnerable patient populations. But before I let him come up here, I, want, I need to read one other thing that I learned about him from scouring the internet, if you will. <laughs> this is not an April Fool thing. <laughs> no, it's on the Tulane website, and it's a phenomenal statement uh, about him. Uh, in addition, you should read the statement that he has for the residency program as its residency director. But it says, in the wake of Hurricane Katrina, Dr. Weiss's leadership was on display. He drove over 56,000 miles visiting his displaced residents and continuing to teach a curriculum that rotated weekly in the three cities in which they were placed. Under his leadership, Tulane's residency lost only five of 115 residents and completely filled their intern complement within the match. Tulane lost only three weeks of curricular time and all the residents seeking it found a fellowship position at the end of their training. What a testament to a dedication and a life and a career to education and to the trainees that we work with. I am so proud and delighted to bring here Jeffrey Weiss to speak with us today. Please welcome him. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much. Well, thank you so much for that introduction. I think everybody was very impressed until you got to the ABIM part. And they're like, oh, all right. Well, uh, as introduced, my name is Jeff Weiss. It is a pleasure to be here, in particular, uh, to honor Dr. Chambers, and I'm so happy his family uh, could attend as well. The title of the talk is, well, let's see, it's not what you think. It's a pretty good title, right? Yeah, sufficiently cryptic that some people are here just to figure out what this is going to be about. <laughs> but sufficiently apologetic that if I offend you over the course of the hour, then I can say at the end, no, 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 it's not what you think. It's all good. Well, okay, I'll try to explain it a little bit. You know, as introduced, I've been a couple of roles, program director for 14 years and chief of the medical service for 16 years. And for those of you that are not in those roles, let me explain the mentality of what goes into a program director or a hospital administrator. Hmm? One, as a program director, you believe fundamentally that all the world's problems can be fixed by a curriculum. You give me an Excel sheet big enough, I'll solve global warming for you, all right? But you do that for five years and you realize, wow, maybe things aren't getting better. And as a hospital administrator, you believe fundamentally that all the world's problems can be fixed by just putting out a new policy. Heretofore, all patients will leave by 11 a.m. every day, right? And then you wake up after three or four years and you realize, wow, that's not working either. And on the last part, it is because of this fundamental truth. The policies and procedures, they work while somebody's watching. They govern behavior if somebody's there to observe it. They pull people along. But they don't push people along. What governs behavior when no one's watching is culture. Those shared roles, goals, expectations, and beliefs. And then as a program director, one day, and Harley can attest, you wake up in the middle of the night in a cold sweat, and what is scaring you to death is this number. 65, 80 hours in a work week, 15 hours with faculty, 
what are my residents doing in those other 65? And what governs the behavior when no one's watching is right back to culture, those shared roles, goals, expectations, and beliefs. And on both fronts, as a hospital administrator and as a program director, you head into it with the idea that if I give people what to think, all the things that they need to know, then everything will be okay. But the reality, if you really want to change culture, is that it's not about giving people more to think. It's about getting people to see the world in a different way. It's not a what of thinking, it's a how of thinking. It's not what you think, it's how you think. Well, if you're willing, then I'm going to take you through this idea that perhaps we could change the way that we think and the people around us. I think that is Dr. Chambers' legacy, if I feel that right. Yeah. As we go through this foyer, if you're willing, there are a few meta lessons. First and foremost, which the politicians would be good to figure out. This is, uh, nobody changes anybody's mind. The only person to change a man's mind is himself. This is an exercise in persuasion, not debate. People arrive at it, this new way of seeing the world, in their own time. Second, if you really want to change the way that people think, that you don't start with, here's the way I want you to think. You start with why they think the way that they do and then you work backwards from there. Third, that you leverage the power of ordinary things, right? As Aristotle put it, we are what we repeatedly do. Excellence then is an act, is a habit, not an act, yeah? And this fundamental truth, which I'll try to uh, make granular or tangible for uh, rounding at the bedside, but it is easier to act your way into new beliefs than it is to believe your way into new actions. Hmm? Well, all right, and the last piece, which whether you like it or not, is gonna be true. You own the culture, or the culture's gonna own you. Yeah? Well, okay, let's make it tangible, shall we? We'll start with how we change those expectations. And I'm gonna start with a story, right, that is uh, laid out by Albert Bandura. You don't have to read this. This is just a fairly uh, fundamental book for me and my development. But what Bandera described was the psychology of what makes a good student a good student, bad student a bad student, right? Now, from the outset, let me say, uh, this, not bad people, right? They're all the same in the eyes of the Lord. Totally cool with that. What we're talking about is, are they good in the way of their performance, okay? So not to offend anybody, but listen, this is the psychology of a good student. We take a student, we put them in an environment. Let's say that's the ward environment. It could easily be the clinics. And the student sends out a ping some behavior. And let's just say it happens to be a bad behavior, right? I'll give you the story. Um, you guys, what EMR do you guys use here? Epic. Epic, yes, us too, which stands for an epic number of student notes to cosign, right? Um, but fair enough, I mean, this story goes pre-epic, right, when we were still using uh, paper, right? I don't know if the residents remember this, but we had pens and paper and you had to write orders. Uh, but I had the student, right, and it just happened to be one day that I came into round early. And so I had some stuff, I guess, in the afternoon. So I saw patients and I wrote, wrote the notes. Usually I waited for the resident team to do it and then I would co-sign. But the student later co-signed my note. <laughs> Agree. <laughs> I'm like, well, all right, one. <laughs> You didn't use the proper linking language, right? You have to see, examine, and discuss with me. And two, you don't agree, I agree, right? I'm the attendant here. 
So what I gave him was, all right, don't, no, you don't agree, right? Play your position. Fair enough. It was all congenial. And then, right, the behavior adjusted. So thereafter, right, that he would not agree with my notes. And uh, the cycle goes on and on and on, right? And this is you. Which is why it makes it really hard when you come across somebody that isn't that good student, because it's so tacit and familiar to you that you think, wow, why doesn't everybody just think this way? Right? I send out a ping, bad response, wasn't effective, I changed my behavior. Yeah? What happens over time is that as you keep going and going, right, that the student develops expectations of what is effective and what is not. Right? Now turn to the bad student, who makes that same bad behavior. What do they get in response? Well, you would think it would be somebody evil. Anybody a Dallas Cowboys fan? <laughs> I just couldn't resist putting this in. Right? You think it would be this evil Sith Lord saying, oh, good, good, do the bad behavior. Huh. It's not an exercise of abuse. It's an exercise of neglect, that they do the bad behavior and nobody responds to it. And so they figure, well, that was OK. Right? So they continue to do that behavior. And if it goes through three or four cycles, then what ends up happening, just with a good student, is that they start to develop their own expectations of what is right and wrong, right? And over time, then comes you to say, oh, you know, this is not the right behavior. But unfortunately, this student's locked in a granuloma of their own expectations, <laughs> right? And you with your antibiotics, you just bounce right off of it, right? Yeah. Two things that you can take from this. One best for you if we never get there to begin with. Because I can tell you, having done a career in remediation, it is really hard to get people out of that granuloma. A different talk. But two, what you can say is that when it comes to setting expectations, and uh, I'll give you an idea of what I'm doing next week. Next week, I'm going to spend two days with a residency program that is completely in trouble. Complete retrofit, all faculty development, two solid days. The first day is going to be this one slide. Why? Because if you set the expectations, now we're in the game in the way of controlling the culture. Yeah? Well, I won't spend that today because we don't have enough time. People are worried, wow, this is a good day lecture? No, 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 i got to get out of here. All of the expectations you can find in my uh, Teaching the Hospital book, which is why I wrote that book. Uh, my favorite part of the book is this right here, you see. Right? It's a senior physician telling a Student, this is a computer. <laughs> Should be the other way around, right? But the student's like, here's how you turn it on. Yeah. But what I do want to talk about are two things uh, um, that come out of the expectations and referable to that student's story, right? Uh, two of the central components. And here's the first, that nobody's coming to you ta uh, tabula rosa. Right? Waiting for your expectations of what should be done on your ward service or your clinic. Now, they're coming loaded with all past experiences, what the previous attending expected them to do, right? Maybe even uh, expectations of well, what they did on OB. Oh my God, right? Uh, what you'll be faced with is you giving your expectations them faced with the expectations they had before and saying, wow, this must just be subjective. Right? That this is this person's style. If it's style, it's unenforceable. Any more than you come into my house saying, I think you should paint it blue. No, I don't want to do that expectation. The way you beat it is to give the rationale. 
here are my expectations for you, and here's why this is important. You're to show up at 6.30 to take person-to-person sign-out, and here's why it matters. Because if you're not person-to-person, eyeball-eyeball, then we don't have the opportunity to clarify what happened last night for the patient. Feel me on that? Those pieces of rationale allow somebody to adjust those previous expectations and into a way that makes sense for them, that becomes enforceable. Well, this last piece I'll talk about at the end of the hour as we get to it, with beginning with the end in mind, right? But I'm going to move forward and talk about the shared beliefs. And the overarching all of this is going to be that central message, how do you act your way into new beliefs? Hmm? Well, okay. Patient-centered rounds. I know you already do this, and in some ways you're saying, well, you're preaching to the choir. Maybe, but that's how you get the choir to sing, right? <laughs> All right, I'm going to talk you through it a little bit. Um, if you're going to do patient-centered rounds, and the reason that people don't do round, what I'm talking about, just so we're all on the same page, is not rounding in a conference room, not rounding in the HIPAA non-compliant hallway. I'm talking about going right to where the patient is and rounding with the patient. Now, I can see some folks saying, wow, but that's too time expensive, right? I don't have time to do that. So I'm going to talk through, to be pragmatic, uh, some strategies to make it time uh, uh, affordable. First, and this is how I start my day, right? That I'll wake up in the morning, that's the beauty of Epic, right? If there's any saving grace, it's that I can wake up 5.36, post-call day, spy on my team, right? See what came in and what's gonna happen. Now, there's several reasons to do this, some pragmatic and some gonna be philosophical. One is that it allows me to manage my day, right? So if I get 14 patients, all new, all right, we gotta move real fast, okay, cool. But two, and most importantly, it allows me to supervise while preserving autonomy. And here becomes the cardinal rule. Your team can never see you doing their job. You can role model aspects of their job, but if they see you doing your job, at some point they're going to say, wow, Weiss is always checking the labs on Friday, right? Ah, I didn't get to it. There's this happy hour I got to get to, right? Yeah, uh, I'm sure he'll do it, right? But I won't do it. Because, spoiler alert, I'm at that happy hour, right? <laughs> and in between center field and second base, that's where the ball drops and the patient gets in trouble. Yeah? Now, this used to be harder, and I'm looking to my senior physician colleagues, right? Because we used to have to sneak in and go around. You see the team on that floor, right? get down the stairwell, see other patients, et cetera. Now I can lab spy, see what's happening. But the other reason is that, listen, we don't have the luxury anymore, as you're going to feel this as I walk through it with my volunteer ward team here, uh, of learning about patients for the first time on rounds. There's too much of my mental bandwidth, you'll see, that I've got to be devoting to assessing, right, as well as teaching. Okay? But the fourth reason is that I'm trying to assess severity of illness. And as part of my expectations, I will have told the team that we are going to prioritize who we see, knowing that, listen, you do have to see every patient every day as an attending, but you don't have to see every patient every day with the team. In fact, I think you're shooting yourself in the foot if you do. You want to have the luxury of seeing some patients on your own such that we can have that discourse of how, how's the resident team taking care of you, right? That's my intel in the afternoon. But what I'm tra training the team to do is to prioritize who we see together. And it should be those three Ds, right? Death. I would like to see people that are dead or about to die first, <laughs> right? That's important. Discharge. Anybody that's here, the longer they stay, the longer they stay. I want to see them next so that we're moving them forward, right? And then diagnostics. That if we've got to put a turkey in the oven, let's do it at 8. 
right? Let's not wait till right before uh, the Thanksgiving meal. Call the consults, get the stories so that we can, or the studies, so that later we can come back and actually act a second time in the day. All right. So when we get to rounds, because I've lab spied, then I'm assessing. Did they get it? Right? And if we're seeing all those people that, all right, these are the people I thought we'd see together, then great. Right? And if we're doing some random hodgepodge of just people that are right there for six weeks of antibiotics for osteomyelitis, then all right, you're missing the point. Right? Like the guy that goes to McDonald's and orders the fish. Completely missed it. Right? <laughs> but the last thing for a lab spy is to choose your teaching topics. Right? So that you can say, wow, felties. I don't know anything about felties. Open browser, study felties. Then I can get to rounds and say, wow, felties. I don't know anything about felties. But here's what I do know about felties. And then the team's going to be like, wow, how'd you know all that? And I can say, well, because I'm a doctor. Yes, indeed. All right. Well, we're about to move towards uh, these patient-centered rounds and getting into the room, my favorite part of the talk. Uh, anybody read this book? Of course not. It's old now. You're like, oh, yeah, that's 80s, whatever. Uh, but this is my favorite of Gladwell's books, right? And if you know the story, the one, the aphorism that I love out of this book is how they cleaned up New York City, right? And you remember that story with a, and I know, we're in Boston territory or thereabouts, so you're th saying, what? New York, it's not cleaned up. It's a hole, right? <laughs> they still have the Yankees, so they ain't cleaned up. Uh, but, they, but there was a time when it was a lot worse, right? The crime waves, et cetera. And you'd think that uh, what they'd do is they'd go after those big things, right? Like the burglaries, the rapes, the murders, et cetera. But uh-uh. What worked was going after the people that were jumping the subway tolls, right? And what it communicated was that, listen, if you're going to get busted, and daisy chained to a bunch of other people that were jumping the tolls. If that little thing mattered, then you better believe the big things are going to matter. But the reason it really worked is because it was accessible. People could see it. Everybody was using the subway. And it was tangible. You knew that, all right, I have to get a token. And it was frequent. It was day in, day out. That daily activity is what started to change behavior, acting your way into a new belief. So let me introduce you to this. Yes? And I know you do this, just uh, looking at the hospital as I walked around a little bit this morning. But it's the Purell. Now, I'm going to tell you this. It's all about hand hygiene. Totally cool with that. And what I'm talking about is the in and the out, right? So all hit Purell when we go in. We all hit Purell when we come out, right? And the team will say, well, but I didn't do anything in there, right? I was just standing like this. Mm -mm. You still hit the Purell when you come out. Otherwise, it's unenforceable. People out in the hallway, they don't know. Maybe you did stand like that. Or maybe you did the bare finger rectal. We don't know, right? So everybody's got to hit it coming out. But I'm going to tell you this, that even if today there was a randomized controlled trial that said, you know what, we got it wrong. You don't have to use Purell anymore. Doesn't matter. Doesn't change. Nosocomial infections, don't do it. I'm still going to make my team do it. And here's why. It's a moment of personal sacrifice. And so when a resident says to me, I don't like using Perel, it chaps my hands. Right? I don't say it to him, but what I'm thinking is exactly, that's why I'm making you use Perel. I want your hands chapped. <laughs> right? When you just want to expediently rush into the room and do what you want to do, that before we get there, we're going to take a pause. Make a moment of self-sacrifice. Metaphorically, it's the mental genuflex. 
that where we are about to enter is now sacred space, and it's not about you anymore. Now, when you come out, you get the Purell, now it can be about you again. But when we're in the space, it's not about you. You feel the analogy to this and those subway tolls. Those things that you frequently, accessibly, tangibly do, acting your way into that new belief. We can talk the world about patient-centered care and how it's not about us. We could have a curriculum about professionalism, but nothing is going to move people's minds and their attitudes like those frequent, accessible things. Hmm? Well, okay. Now, I have a ward team. Am I right? Yes? All right. And a patient. Yes? All right. I'm going to have you lay down here, patient. Yes? Good. Sorry, I should have brought a pillow. It's, uh, yeah, my Prescani score is going to take a hit on this one. Well, okay. So here's what we're going to do, right? Come over on this part, team, before we get in. So we'll pretend like we're out in the hallway over here. Yes. Uh, so two things. One, to save time, what we're not going to do is round twice. You know what I'm talking about? Where we go to the hip and non-compliant hallway, we round, we talk about here, then we go in the room, and then we do it all over again. Uh-uh. We're just going to the door with me knocking, looking back, saying, anything so super sensitive that we can't talk about it in front of the patient? But understand this, that's going to be a really high bar. Because that information, that's not mine, it's not ours, that's his. Right? Belongs to him. And what discussions we got to have, we got to have. Right? I think Dr. Chambers lived that legacy. So we knock on the door, we hit the Purell, and we come in. Now, here choreography. And there are different strategies. You can do, as we're standing here, what I call the zoo approach. Ooh, <laughs> look at the patient in his natural habitat. I wonder what he eats. Yeah. Or we could do the sidebar, right, where we're all on the same side, right? I'm going to pretend like they're over here, right? da, 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 which is good. It's better. We're getting closer to the patient. But unfortunately, one of us is going to have the back, our back to the patient, right? And it's still this line of scrimmage between us and the patient. Or we could symbolically make it truly patient-centered. So what I'll say to the team is, all right, who's responsible for this patient? Yes, you stand right over there, right? Supervising resident right there. And me at, this, uh, at the other side, okay? And I'll talk you through why this is important. First, it is going to be me kneeling or sitting. And that matters. Good studies to support this. That if you ask patients, hey, and a good, uh, uh, good randomized trial of two teams, right? And the, both teams were assigned to go to a patient's room for 10 minutes, right? And see all their patients for 10 minutes. One team was to stand, and one team was to sit or kneel. And they went back to the patients and said, hey, how much time did the team spend with you? And what they got with the team that sat or kneeled? 20 minutes. That's what they perceived. For the team that, uh, that stood through the whole uh, event, two minutes. When you're standing, what the patient sees is not this. What they see is this, all right? Like, I got to get that stuff out, blah, 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 blah. All right. So I'm going to sit or kneel, but there's another point to it uh, as well. One, because I want the lines of sight, all right? So I'm going to have this student or this intern present in front of the patient. 
Now I know, there's students interns in the crowd saying, oh my God, I won't do that. Uh, I'm gonna sweat, I'm gonna be nervous. Exactly, that's exactly why I'm having you do it, right? And I'll talk you through that in a second. But at this angle, my first line of sight is to watch both the presentation, but also the patient's face. Because if I see suddenly the furrowed brow, right? Like, whoa, whoa, wait a second, let me fact check that. Eight beers a day? No, right? No, I only drink one 48-ounce beer a day. <laughs> All right. But two, if I see the pupils dilate, like, oh, my God. Right? Like, no, listen, you don't have Zika virus. Right? She's, she's talking about somebody else. Your head's going to stay the same size. It's all good. All right? All right, so I'm fact-checking the data. Now, I'm going to tell you this, right? As much as this can be a little uncomfortable for a week or two, the accuracy and the quality of the data that you're getting on your patients is going to go through the roof. Why? Because this person is going to learn quickly in that response. I've got to get the right data. It's embarrassing if I'm presenting stuff that, or confabulating and stuff that I didn't ask. Yeah? But all right, come back to that line of sight in a second. Second line of sight is out of the corner of my eye watching this person. Why? Because she's doing one of two things. Either one, she's furiously writing all this information down, which tells me this is the first time she heard it, right? She might have been a rock star intern, but when it comes to managing other people by proxy, she's not there yet. And it means, and not that she's bad, it's just that in my supervision to autonomy, I've got to have more supervision for this person, yeah? On the, uh, uh, on the flip side, if instead of writing it down, you see her like a parent at a grade school play, mouthing the words like, oh, come on, come on, <laughs> right? Yeah, then she gets more autonomy. She's in charge, yeah? All right, so back to this line of sight. And before I end that, listen, I look around the room and I see that not everybody has glasses, and that's okay. Uh, but even if you don't need glasses, uh, to be an attending, you need to buy some. Just non-prescription, <laughs> right? Just to have something, right? So when something's really, uh, really a whack, that I can look to the resident over my glasses. <laughs> All right. <clears throat> Third line aside is back to the intern in this patient. And here's what I'm assessing. I'm assessing the degree of covalency. And there's a spectrum, as you learn to be at the patient's bedside, to be the, the, the uh, physician that's truly connected to the patient. And you'll see this when you bring in second-year medical students, first time on the wards, right, and you ask them to present a patient, they're inert. Right? There's just no sharing of a bond between, as far as they're concerned, this is a dog lab, and it's all about the disease, but not about the person. And then as people progress, you'll find interns into that ionic phase, right, where they're bound to the patient, but only because the PKA is right, right? Uh, but as soon as they're done off service, they're out, right? What you're looking for is covalency, that these two start to share an electron. And I'll tell you where you find it. You find it when these two start having a conversation as if you're not even there. Right? Where the patient says, well, you know, but I thought we were going to do this. And the intern says, no, no, remember, we talked about this. We're going to talk to da 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 And I feel extraneous. That's covalent. And once it's covalent, this person gets more autonomy. Why? Because even if she doesn't know what to do for the patient, she's going to find somebody that does when I'm not around because she's got an electron at risk. Know what I mean? Yes, all right. Fantastic. Uh, last thing, just before I get the patient up, just pragmatically, right, to be me on this side and you on this side. If we have to do the physical exam, it's no reorganization, just, hey, grab a shoulder, right? 
Thanks, Julia, right? Yep, and we do the discussion, blah, blah, blah. Yeah? Okay, thank you, team. Yes. <laughs> Round of applause for our team. For the first time ever, you finished rounds and you're right on time for grand rounds. <laughs> All right, well, the last thing before we leave that room, again, acting your way into a new belief. And listen, this I'm not going to tell the team, right? Uh, I'm just going to wait for them to feel it. But by the end of the month, it'll work. And what I'm talking about, anybody read this book by Swartz? Yeah, Paradox of Choice. Swartz makes the point, right, that people love choice. And the reason they love choice is because it gives them a sense of control of their environment. Right? It's like a toddler you ever had a, or a baby right? when you first start feeding them, and they get so much joy out of taking the oatmeal and throwing it down. Right? That's their way of, wow, I can control the universe around me, in small part, but still. I don't know if you've ever been a patient. I have. And I can tell you the most frustrating part about being a patient is the lack of choice, because it is a complete, utter lack of control. The things that you used to do, you take for granted, right? That, oh, I'm hungry. I'll choose to go and open the refrigerator, get something to eat. Mm -mm, can't do that. I have to go to the bathroom. I'll just go to the bathroom. Uh-uh. Got to call somebody. They got to take you to the bathroom. It's that lack of choice that is disempowering. Now, you could say to a patient, oh, you still have choice, right? Or we could just slowly work our way into it. Yeah, which is simply to say five times for every patient that I'm there with the team, I'm going to ask the patient some innocuous choice. Hey, do you want this cup over here or you want it over there? You want the curtain pulled or you want it open? You want the TV on, TV off? You want to watch Price is Right? You sure you don't want to watch something else, right? It's like everybody's sick wants to watch Price is Right. Have you noticed that? Right. By the end of rounds, you pretty much know who won the showcase showdown. Yeah. But five innocuous choices all the way through, right? Now, what you'll find is the team doesn't know what's happening, but it's seeping in. And by the end of the month, they're going to be like, all right, so we have two choices. We could do the ACE inhibitor or the beta blocker. Here are the options on both, and what do you want to do? that they start moving that space into patient-centered choice. Yeah? All right. Last thing before we re leave the room, just to try to emphasize uh, why it's so important, I think, to be uh, at, the, at the bedside during the rounds. One, if you think about it, a patient has no luxury, if you're running in the hall or in a conference room, of seeing the amount of intellectual and emotional capital that has gone into their care. Right? People really wrestling with what's the right thing to do, how are we going to make this happen? But if we're not there to show it to them, they don't get to see it. And in some ways, getting back to that covalency, that disempowers the patient and your intern from forming that bond. If what they see is just me walking in saying, all right, well, we're going to change your beta blocker to this dose and you'll be going home on Thursday. See ya. Right? What they've learned is, wow, being a doctor is not that hard. I can do that. <laughs> right? But what they didn't see is just how much effort that intern put into their care. And if they did, then you start to see these two coming together, building that bond. And listen, if anybody here is interested in readmissions, let me give you the secret sauce. You could do a curriculum on it. That's cool. You could do a protocol on it. You could do patient education pamphlets on it. But the one way to beat readmissions is to empower the patient for their own care of their own disease. And if we're not having that discussion with them in that room, they're not getting empowered. That's a job. Well, all right, so we come out of the room, right? Yeah, somebody laughed at this. Anybody know, the, know, know this movie? 
Coming, coming to America, exactly right. Yes, McDowell's, not uh, McDonald's. Yes, uh, which makes a point, right? And I'm going to tell you a story. I guess I got a few minutes to tell you this story. Uh, it was a few years ago uh, that it happened, and it happened all at once, right? Like June, I was attending, and I was funny, right? And I'd be time, at least. Right? But then July came, and it was new residents, and I suddenly, I was not funny. I'm like, what? Right? And then it dawned on me, they're not getting my frame of reference. Right? They hadn't seen coming to America. So I was like, I went to my wife, who's much more culturally in tune with things, NPR and all that. And um, I was like, all right, so i got to learn the culture of this new generation, what's funny for them, et cetera, et cetera. So I studied it. I watched their movies. Right? I was like, all right, I'm going to be funny. Uh, and, and then I would I'd give the lines, and it would be this polite laugh. I'm like, oh, yeah. <laughs> Almost. <laughs> I'm like, oh, I'm just not going to be able. And then it dawned on me, you know what? I'm the attending, right? So now what I do is part of the expectations. I say, listen, I'm going to give you a list of movies. You don't have to watch these movies, but if you do, I'm going to be a lot funnier. <laughs> so here, here you go. And you're only working a 16-hour day, so don't tell me you don't have time to watch movies. But all right, you know, going back to McDowell's, it's to remind you if you've gone through, um, <clears throat> if you've gone through a drive-through, you've experienced closed-loop communication, right? You go through McDonald's and say, "All right, I want two number threes and a shake." Right? And they would reply, oh, three shakes and a uh, number three. No, 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 no. Two number threes and a shake, and don't judge me, right? Two number threes and a shake. And they repeat it back, right? And that's closed loop, right? Get it? Got it? Good. That you say it, and then you demand that it's repeated back, right? And if it's wrong, then we edit it, and if it's right, we reaffirm it. It's effective communication. Now, we could do a curriculum on it. Sure we could. And that would be in the context of iPass, right, and how to sign people, patients out, et cetera, et cetera. Or, again, we could leverage those frequent, ordinary, tangible things. Yeah, which is to say, as we come out of the room, I'll say to the team, all right, from the plan that you laid out, here's what we're going to do, this, this, and this. Now, repeat it back to me. And every single patient, we're going to have that closed loop. And by the end of the month, don't be surprised when you're, you, they say to you, hey, I'm going to do this, and you start walking away, they're like, ah, oh, repeat it back, right? <laughs> All right, I'm telling you this, uh, one, not only makes you better and safer, it'll save your marriage. That whole Mars-Venus thing, uh, you'll solve it. Well, all right. So I'm going to go through a couple things here. All right. Uh, now, what I'm getting to. Uh, on this next piece, because you may be wondering, because this is the space to teach. And I'm looking around the room, and we were having this discussion before we came in. With the world becoming so much busier and faster, it's real tempting to say, you know what, I've got so many patients, I'm being judged by RVUs, right? I've got to get patients out, right? Uh, hospital CEOs on me with this discharge by 11, right? Why? Because every medicine patient's a wasted ortho. Uh, bad, right? Uh, but all the same, it becomes tempting to say, well, I'm not going to teach, right? Uh, we'll just find times when it's convenient. Well, spoiler alert, there's never a convenient time anymore to teach. Now, in some parts, you may say, well, all right, teaching is the right thing. I really should do it. Da, da, da. All right, you're right. It is the right thing. It's about caring for patients that aren't sick yet, right? The better my residents are, the better the health care is going to be for people down the road. But also, I'm also going to submit to you that it's about you, right? Which is to say, you and your blind spot. 
There are three mental buckets. There are things that you know that you know. Anemia, right? We're all over that. There is bucket number two, things that you know that you don't know. Rheumatology, <laughs> right? And pretty much all of it. Cytokines, I still don't get it, but I can fake my way through. But importantly, there, are, there is bucket number three, things that you don't know that you don't know. Now, I will mention ABIM, I can't help it. But the point of having a scare exam in part is that when you have to study for it, it forces you to explore your blind spots, things that you thought you knew that you didn't. That was part of the value of it. All right, I'm going to leave that aside and just say that the other way to find your blind spots is to teach. Because third-year medical students, man, they got a special gift, right? And thankfully, they, that gift goes away at the end of the third year. Otherwise, we'd be it'd be annoying. But any incompetence you put up on that whiteboard, they're going to be like, right there. <laughs> you don't know that. Like, yeah, you're right. The more I teach, the more I find my blind spots. It's the reason, as I think Dr. Chambers was emblematic, that it's the great teachers that become the great clinicians, not the other way around. Hmm? Well, all right, we're out in the hallway now, an opportunity to do some feedback, right? Oh, but before we do feedback, I'm going to take you uh, to our shared roles and goals. Hmm? Anybody read this book? Really? Yes, awesome. All right, so you can attest to what I'm about to say to the rest of you, all right? Uh, the, one, the reason nobody's read this book, is came is, uh, Kars was a religion professor at NYU, so it came out in the 70s. Um, and it was immediately lost. Why? Because it's just way over the top, way too much, right? And I'm going to give this proviso to you. Ready? If you are going to read this book, you are to make no major life decisions. <laughs> don't buy a new car, don't buy a new house, don't get a new spouse, because mm -mm, this book is going to mess you up. <laughs> I don't mean kind. I, I mean, you're going to be rocking in the corner, eating porridge, listening to Coldplay for two weeks. And, oh my God, what happened to me? But I'll try to keep it light. Uh, Karst talks about the way that we see each other and, and the way of mental games, right? He talks about finite games and infinite games. I'll try to make it quick to get through this, not too heavy. But a finite game at its core was, uh, and listen, it's helpful to understand a finite game, to think about a football game, right? Okay, trivial. But a finite game has a finite beginning and a finite end, right? Or a Broadway play. It starts and then it ends. And in the space of a finite game, everybody are abstractions of themselves, right? The person playing Brutus is not actually Brutus, right? Just playing the role, yeah? And in a finite game, importantly, that uh, what is not explicitly prohibited is implicitly allowed. Right? There was a day in football, if you know football, where nobody had done, Newt Rockney had not yet thrown a forward pass. And then it happened, and everybody's like, whoa, what was that? Is that in the rule book? Okay, you can throw a forward pass. Right? There was a day where it was not explicitly prohibited that, remember this, time to antibiotics? Yes, where we had to give patients antibiotics within four, first four hours of presenting to the emergency department for the pneumonia. It's all cool, right? But it was not explicitly prohibited that we couldn't make a policy that everybody got antibiotics, right? And even people walking past the ER didn't get antibiotics, right? And we got into the green, and green stood for C. diff, right? Because everybody had got antibiotics. But what is not explicitly prohibited in a finite game is implicitly allowed. But the biggest piece, 
In a finite game, the utility of any action is measured solely by how effective it is in helping you win the game. And if it doesn't help you win the game, then we're not going to do it. Yeah. All right, you're like, well, that doesn't really mess me up. Okay. Well, I'm going to submit this to you. Let's go back in the time course, the mentality of the people that are coming to you, to be taught by you. Yeah? High school. Finite beginning, finite end, each course. College, semesters, finite beginning, finite end. Right? Uh, semesters, such that what you learn in the fall, you're not accountable for in the spring. Uh-uh. Right? New course. Yeah? And in that space, I'm going to take you back to those semesters and tell me you didn't do this, right? That when you had amassed enough points that you knew you were going to get the A regardless of how you did on the final, what'd you do? You stopped going to that class. You mentally just took a knee to run out the clock. And then we take you to med school and we have finite blocks. You're like, well, I don't know. You know, is that really finite beginning, finite end? We'll try this one on for size. Try sneaking in a cardiology question on a renal block. See what happens. It'll be a protest. You're like, yeah, but dude, they're connected, right? It doesn't matter. Finite beginning, finite end. And the goal in each of these spaces, and fast forward to residency and then maybe to shifts, but these people are coming to you not just as good finite players, these people are coming to you as ninja finite players. They're figuring out exactly how to win that finite game, right? So, yeah, before I get to infinite games, yeah, well, yeah, I'll jump ahead. All right, let me talk about infinite games and then I'm gonna come back to finite games and why this matters to you. Infinite games, I'll give you the, the mental uh, image. You remember as a kid, you'd be playing out on the playground, right? We'll say we're like, I don't know, seven, eight, nine, school's out, playing some game, kick the can or basketball or touch football or whatever, right? Uh, and one of the uh, teams with the kids starts to win, right? Like really win. What do the kids do? Got to get you guys out more. Yeah. <laughs> they change the rules. They're like, all right, let's switch quarterbacks, right? Or, hey, if your team throws a basketball and it hits off the garage and then it goes in, you get 36 points, all right? And we'll stop the game and allow that to happen. And we're like, all right, let's start again, right? Because the goal of that game had no other purpose than just to push the sun back up in the sky for one hour, just to keep playing before mom called us home for dinner, right? Now you say, well, wow, and don't tell me I'm wrong on this. Doesn't that image make you happy? And you say, what happened to those days? Here's what happened. Middle school. That's what happened. Because know this about all infinite play, that once you start measuring it, once you start putting stakes on it, like grades instead of satisfactories, now people start, the behavior starts to move to change a different finite game, right? Now, what can you say about infinite games? Two things, I think. One, that what makes it infinite is that the people, even after the game's over, we continue to exist, right? See it as relationships versus as rules. And two, that the value of any action in an infinite game is measured by its innate utility, regardless whether it helps me, right, do well in that exam. It's the difference between learning and being in a course to get the A. Yeah? All right.
Now, I'm going to say there's nothing wrong with finite games. You've got to win your finite games so you don't get to play. Academic medicine's a game of pinball, right? Your reward for doing well is you get to keep playing. But at the end of it all, you're out of quarter. Yeah? Uh, <laughs> where there is a problem is when finite games get in the way of infinite games. When you start throwing people onto the bus because it makes you look better, destroying the relationship that you had with that nurse or with that night flow, right? So why do finite games make you unhappy? Yeah? Have you heard that? Is this going to be on the exam? Because hidden in there is implicitly, because if it ain't going to be on the exam, I'm not studying for it. If it doesn't help me win my finite game, I'm not going to do it. Yeah? Uh, why are your fourth-year students? Any fourth-year students here? Yes, one that said she would be here. Yes. Why aren't they here? You know why? Because match was two weeks ago. <laughs> They're running out the clock, man. They're done. Why are your third-year residents so burnt out? Hey, spoiler alert, they're not burnt out because they're tired of doing it. Uh-uh. Find them in July when they're cardiology fellows. Now they're all excited again. It's because they already got their fellowship. Finite game's over. Yeah? What I'm going to submit to you is that feedback is not just about giving people, hey, here's how you can improve. It's an opportunity to start shifting people's mentality to start thinking infinitely, if you do it right. Yeah? Let me give you an example. And here's going to be the rub. You're going to sit down with the student, if you even do it, right? And the reason you probably don't want to do it is because you're like, wow, this is so uncomfortable. I'll figure out, I don't know, 10 new patients I can see to avoid doing this. Uh, but let's say you sit down with the student and say, hey, I'm going to give you some feedback, okay? Now, uh, what they're going to hear as you go on and on and on about the things they need to do to improve, let's say you're doing it right, is what they hear uh, is not the, hey, you need to do this, you do this. What they hear is Charlie Brown teacher voice. Right? Because at the end we'll be, did I get an A? Is this honors? Right? They're focused on winning that finite game. They're not bad people. But mentally that's how they've been socialized to think. Now you can break them out of it. Couple strategies. One, uh, anybody here a big fan of the uh, feedback sandwich? Yeah, okay. It's, a, it's better than what we had before, right? Like our surgical colleagues still evoke of, oh, you, this is why you suck, right? Uh, uh, so, better than that, if you don't know a feedback sandwich, it's all right. We're going to give some bread, some good stuff. Oh, here's the stuff that I uh, like you doing, right? And then the meat of here's how you need to improve. And then just to make it mentally confusing, we'll come back with some more good stuff, right? <laughs> Which is fine, but I'm going to submit to you well, one way that you might uh, th think about readjusting, okay? I'm going to give you three strategies. One is to do the feedback pizza. Okay? Before I describe this, I'm going to tell you the reason that I don't like the feedback sandwich is because it sounds great until it's you getting sandwiched. <laughs> right? You know what I'm talking about. Like, I'll go home, my wife's like, hey, I just want to say thanks for picking up around the house and I love what you're doing in the yard. For, you did the dishes. And I'm thinking, who is this? Right? <laughs> My wife doesn't give me compliments. Oh, man, I'm getting sandwiched. Right? And then comes the butt. Da, 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 da. But as soon as you know you're getting sandwiched, everything's silent because you're waiting for the word butt. Yep. Butt signals the end of a finite game. It signals you tried as hard as you did, and you came up wanting. But that game's over, and you failed. Now, you can make one substitution. Take out the word but, insert and. 
Because and is an infinite game. It implies that we are always going to keep playing. And it's not a hard strategy. The pizza I'm talking about, just two levels. Here's what I love about what you're doing for this patient. Here's all the great things. And here's how you could be even better. Forward thinking in infinite play. Yeah? It's mentally like saying, hey, you won the gold medal. And next time, this is how you could set the world record. It's empowering. And it starts moving people out of that, hey, did I get the honors or not, right? And towards how I can improve. Second strategy is to get people mentally ready for it. So before I give any feedback, I'm going to say, hey, can I coach you a little bit? Right? And what you'll find is not only that person is like, yeah, but all the rest of the team leans in like, I want to be coached. What's up, man? Right? Just that mentally, can I coach you for improvement going forward? Yeah? But the third is the two-penny approach. And this is what I do mid-month. That I'll sit down with the team one at a time and say, all right, uh, Julia, here's a list of ten things that I think go into uh, making uh, uh, great clinical care. They don't have to be ACG core competencies. Make them granular, tangible, things people can really understand. Good with nurses. Good family conferences, with family at family conferences, right? Uh, good oral presentations. Very tangible. I'm going to give you a penny, right? I'm going to take a penny. You put it on your weakest spot. I'm going to put it on what I think is your weakest spot, and we're going to talk about how you improve those two areas. Yeah. Now, what it does is it moves us off, right? Now, that um, useless feedback in the middle which is, oh, yeah, you should read more, right? Now, listen, just a, nobody was on the bubble. Oh, wow, should I read more or should I read less? <laughs> oh, thanks for that. I'll read more. <laughs> now, I can get into some strategy of, hey, here's how you can improve, right? Now, you may be saying, well, it doesn't cover everything. It's okay. Rising tide lifts all boats, right? And what I'm really interested in is not what that strategy is going to be for them to improve. What I'm teaching them, acting their way into a new belief, is that I'm doing this for you now. But hopefully, years from now, you do this yourself. That however good you are, even if you're winning that finite game, you could be better. And that's what I'm signaling. You could be the worst student in the class, you're getting treated this way. You could be the best student in the class, you're getting treated exactly the same way. But always forward thinking in the way of infinite play. Well, all right. I told you at the beginning, there was step 11, beginning with the end in mind. Time's about right for the hour. So I'm going to talk a little bit about the Jahari Square. Anybody know this? Yeah, so largely a two by two, right? So there are things. Uh, I'll just point to it. There are things that are known to you about yourself. There are things not known to you about yourself. There are things that other people know about you. There are things uh, that other people do not. Asking for feedback, right? moves you closer by taking out more and more of your blind spot. It's where you learn things that you didn't know about yourself, but other people can tell you that your deodorant quits at three, right? So now you know. Yeah, that's great. But I'm going to make the point, too, that by giving feedback, you are disclosing part of who you are. Implicit on what you give feedback to is your value for that point. If I say, hey, my feedback is you need to work better with the nurses as a team, multidisciplinary care. Implicit in that is that I value nurses and multidisciplinary care, right? It's part of exploring yourself. Now, I'm going to shift gears, and what I'm talking about is end of the month. Because here's how it's going to go down, and I tell them at the beginning in the expectations. At the end of the month, here's what we're going to do. We're all going to sit in a room, 
And then I'm going to dismiss you one by one. Everybody's going to talk about you. I'm going to write it down. And then we'll just keep going in and out until everybody has had an opportunity to be outside, including myself. And then what I'm going to do is sit with the group. We're going to go around one person at a time and say, all right, rest of the team, what did you think of her performance? What feedback do you want to give? Anything they don't feel comfortable giving that they said in private, then that's my job as the attending to read that out. Right? It does two things. One, and I'm just going to submit this to you. If you're asking why is it as faculty we're so bad at giving feedback, I'm going to submit to you. Was there ever a time that anybody taught you how to do that? Mm -mm. Part of my lesson is teaching them how to do it. Right? But part of it, too, is as they give feedback, they're starting to um, understand things about themselves they might not have known. Put it this way. Asking for feedback and giving feedback closes in in a vector sort of way, right? That big blind spot that they might not have known about themselves. Yeah? All right. The second reason to do it, of course, is that uh, as we go around the room, all right, beginning with the end in mind, I'll step that back, beginning with the end in mind, if they know that this is going to happen, what you'll find is that in that space during that ward month, that team gels. Because now that temptation to do the finite game of throwing somebody under the bus, and I'm pretty explicit with them, man, you can do that if you want, but just know that it's the people around you that are going to give you your grade, not me. So I might think better about that. Focus on the relationships, take care of each other. You're going to do well at the end of this because they're the one giving the grade. Now, pragmatically, it also has a couple of benefits. One, because if I have to give a student a poor grade and they come back and protest it, then I can say, well, I'd love to change your grade. But what the team has come together, one man cannot undo. <laughs> I'm sorry. Team said it, and it's over. Two, that after I'm done with that, I just take those notes, hand it to my administrator, say E-value, load it up. And what you'll find in this exercise is that what happens after governs what happens within, that the team comes together during their award month and is taking care of each other in true infinite play, right? And they start to think outside of themselves and am I just uh, getting ahead, right? Just winning that game. Well, all right, looks like I've come to the end of the hour, so I'll step back and simply say this to you and submit to you, as I think Dr. Chambers exemplified in his life, that this is not about a what of thinking, but all of graduate medical education, the whole thing, right, was that fixed false delusion that if we just learn more, everything was going to be okay. It's how we see each other. It's how we see the world. It's how we put in uh, uh, to tangible actions those philosophical uh, values that we have. Things like patient care can be only solved, patient-centered care, I mean, only solved by seeing the world in a different way. But changing the way that we see the world, that's our job. And I can tell you, my first five years, I didn't get that. And my last 10 years of doing that, that's what I am. I'm somebody that tries to socialize people into a profession in a way to see themselves with the nurses, with the social workers, with everybody in a multidisciplinary care as part of one team with one set of optics. What's best for that patient, right? You change the culture. You own the culture, or the culture's going to own you. But it can be done. Well, regardless of what you thought of my presentation, I think we can agree it's definitely not what you thought. Right? 
It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Given the hour, I'll invite you to come up and speak with Jeff as you'd like. But I want to say one last thing. On the top of the internet page for the residency program at Tulane, his first line said, I came to Tulane to make a difference. I think you'll agree with me that he is a man who can make a lot of difference and, and gave us many things to think about for making differences in our own practices. Thank you, Jeff, for being here. It's a pleasure. Thank you.